Welcome to Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning. It's nice to have Tim back too. We missed you last Sunday. He was in Mexico suffering for the cause. That's right. Glad to see all of you on a beautiful 9 o'clock morning. Who's so glad that it was sunny and not raining? I can do the one hour earlier if it's sunny. So this is God's gift to us today. Uh, I'm going to keep the windows open as long as I can until it blinds somebody. So wave your hand and uh, somebody will fix it. Um, If I have not met you yet, my name's Christian Lindbeck. Um, I get to serve here as a Sunday morning teacher and as the leader of an outstanding team of pastors and staff. Um, So it's my pleasure to welcome you here this morning. As Tim said, we're in the fifth week of a series uh, that we started on Ash Wednesday. So for using some high church language during the whole season of Lent, leading us up to Easter, we have been looking uh, at the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark through the lens of um, how Jesus is the stronger one. As promised in chapter 1, verse 7, which we continue to read as our key verse, when John says about Jesus, after me comes the stronger one. And I just love this sort of act of humility, this declaration of how strong, the sandals of whom I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So for the past four weeks, uh, we have been looking and coming to appreciate, let me say this the right way, coming to appreciate Jesus more and more. I know that sounds like uh, that's something we ought to be doing all the time, but these, when we get back into these stories of the gospel and we put Jesus in the middle, the primary fruit is we say, wow, he is way more than just teacher or prophet. Uh, We are extraordinarily moved by how remarkable he was and how he proved himself as stronger than the most alluring temptation, stronger than the most fierce isolation, um, stronger than the chaos that threatens to undo us. And last week we talked about stronger than anything that enslaves us, these things that own our life. And at each intersection, as we've looked at each one, every time Jesus runs into these alternate powers or these difficult circumstances, he shows this understanding and grace and compassion and intention, and this undeniable strength, power, authority, an easy, overwhelming authority over the circumstances, the people, and the situation. And uh, this week will be no different than those, although I think uh, we will find more occasion to identify ourselves with the humans in this story uh, uh, perhaps feel some like-minded conviction. You know, it's hard sometimes when, the, when other than Jesus, the other person's a leper, because not a lot of us are like, oh, I totally feel that. You know, like, uh, you, know you have to kind of associate uh, another idea. But today, I think you'll really be able to appreciate who he is, how he deals with them. And I, and I hope mostly uh, appreciate that the stronger one came to rescue us out of love and not to condemn us with his superiority. And each time he shows himself stronger, see how he interacts with the people or the circumstance 
in which he is stronger. Uh, now, we have been saying throughout this series that for us to get through Mark in that short period of time and to be done by Easter, we have to limit the examples of which we show Jesus as the stronger one. And so we've been moving through the text, but kind of landing at those places that most clearly unpack some new facet of how Jesus is the stronger one. So sometimes we have to move through some larger segments of text. Now, last week, end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, and we got a, I, last week I got to pick up right where Tim left off, which was fun. Uh, but this week we're jumping ahead five chapters. And now five chapters might not strike you as a lot right away, but Mark is only 16 chapters long. And we spent the first four weeks in the first five chapters. So now we are suddenly skipping ahead uh, to the last third of the book, uh, which means we're talking about a kind of a dramatic change, certainly in the story, but most dramatically in the context. Uh, so what's happening with Jesus? And all along, we've been able to look at the context of these stories and glean kind of a greater understanding, right? It was the context that set for us uh, what he said and why he said it and how he was teaching. We've I think seen along the way, he's always teaching uh, in action or in word. He's constantly instructing the people around him or the disciples whom he's trying to train up to carry this uh, ministry uh, after him. So just like before, context will be key for helping us understand uh, our story of the stronger one today. Uh, last week, like I said, we were in the beginning of chapter 5, uh, Jesus was still in his early ministry around the Sea of Galilee. I, we talked about that kind of being the northern center of wealth, some commerce and entertainment. Uh, it's where he was gathering his disciples, performing. He was in a season of performing mighty deeds, teaching with great authority, and assembling this base of people whom he was training up, these disciples who were going to carry on uh, his ministry after he was gone. And so uh, all of our context was in him trying to teach them those ideas. Well, in chapter 10, uh, where we're at today, so we're skipping five chapters ahead. Uh, in chapter 10, he is leaving Galilee and he's making his way down the Jordan River Rift, that green line uh, on the far east side making his way down the Jordan River up to Jerusalem, which is considerably up, almost 3,000 feet from where he landed in the desert. And this becomes the context. So as we begin chapter 10, it's going to say he went south down to Perea, which is across the Jordan River, south across from Jericho, kind of the furthest south that that green line goes. And it begins to set the context for us because he's on his way up to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the center of Israel in every conceivable way. <laughs> Not just geographically, but politically, religiously, power. It's the, it's the kind of heart of this country. It remains that way today. And for Jesus to make his final stand, to make his point, to walk up to his final destiny, it's to Jerusalem that he must go. And so uh, we want to think of him as on the way. To make a way. He's on the road. He's on the way. It says, while Jesus was on his way, he goes to make a way, provide a way, become the way. Um, through death and his historically verifiable and true resurrection, he will be 
the way. And his disciples, like I say, he's always teaching, are struggling to understand. And it's taken a tone change. Um, really since chapter 8, so in the middle of where we left off and where we're at, uh, Peter uh, finally declares, Jesus, you are the promised Messiah. You are the one, you are the Son of God, the promised Messiah. Uh, Jesus follows that up by saying, you're right, now I have to go and die. And Peter's like, say, what? <laughs> I just said, like, you're the ruler of it all. In fact, Peter rebukes him. Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter right back because these followers of his cannot wrap their mind around that this holy man of mighty words and mighty deeds is going to accomplish his greatest victory through an apparent loss, uh, through this death and his resurrection. And so here, as we get into chapter 10, in fact, in chapter 8, and then right before chapter 10 and right after chapter 10, Jesus says again, my way is I must walk to my own death. So the chapter that we're in is sandwiched in these declarations, and it's the third one in a few chapters where he said, my way, my road, uh, the way that I'm going includes my death and my new life. And everyone who wishes to follow me, and this must have been cryptic, he says this all the way back in chapter 8, everyone who wishes to follow me must pick up their own cross and follow me in the same way. That context his motion from north to south and up to Jerusalem, that context sets our understanding for this story of the stronger one today. And before we can read and understand what Jesus is trying to say to the rich young ruler that he meets in Perea, we have to have that context in mind. Good? So if you would then open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Uh, so, you know, if you're kind of getting used to it, Mark's far right in the Bible is the way we like to say, in the middle of the Gospels. Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 17. If you don't have a Bible, uh, I want to invite you to grab one on us as our gift today. Anytime today, they're in the back. You can grab one on the way out. If you want to snag one right now, uh, you are welcome. Uh, if you don't have it and don't want to grab it now, you can follow along on the words that are going to be on the screen uh, behind me and the rest of you. I really want to encourage you, again, we keep journals for this reason. Write in your Bible or write in a journal or write somewhere so that you are interacting with these ideas and you can continue to unpack them in your small groups or at home or after church or at lunch. Um, it, it doesn't work if it all happens in these 35 minutes, essentially. Uh, there needs more time to process uh, what's going on here. So we're going to pick it up in Mark Chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, with the context in mind that Jesus is on his way. So listen, listen to how verse 17 begins. As Jesus started on his way. There we go, right? A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Okay, uh, so again, beginning, on his way where? On his way to Jerusalem to, to die and be resurrected. So again, we are setting the context for Jesus in motion on his way to Jerusalem. Um, and this is, again, uh, I think key. Mark is making the point with Peter and Jesus making the point about teaching in those circumstances. What well, says this man runs up to him and falls on his knees. Now, we pick up here 
from Matthew and Luke, which are the, called the two other synoptic gospels, the gospels that are telling the same story generally in the same way from a different viewpoint, that he was also young and a leader or a ruler. So he was a rich, in fact, each one goes out of his way to point out that he was very wealthy. He is a very wealthy, young leader, possibly even a leader or a ruler in the synagogue. So he has power and money and youth, uh, which means everything about him running up and falling on his knees in front of Jesus is unexpected. Right? Like here he's got everything going for him. He throws aside what people might think and runs up and falls on his knees uh, in front of a dirt poor itinerant preacher from Podunk, Galilee. Uh, you know, this guy's got everything going for him, and here he is uh, on his knees before Jesus, which I think, and I want to say this just to set the scene, sets, uh, uh, shows us an earnest young man with a burning question, one that is really bothering him. This is not like religious gymnastics. He, it's, this is, what must I do to inherit eternal life is like, it's working in his heart. We're going to see that he's been profoundly religious and he is not gaining peace. And he is, he is putting his hope in Jesus, which means I kind of like him already, right? Like this is, he is wrestling with real questions. And you saw that to that he adds good teacher, which is an honorific and appropriate title. Um, I don't think that you should take too much from Jesus questioning him on that title. I don't think it's a rebuke so much as it's asking him to slow down and think, whom are you talking to? Uh, Then see how leading that question is? Only God is good, right? And so he's slowing this earnest young man who's running up and falling on his knees to consider whom is he talking to? Well, he begins to unpack kind of his question immediately beginning in verse 17. So you saw there that he says, ask Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And here we have the crux of his problem framed with the right question, wrong motive, or wrong way to get there. So what I want you to see is he really wants eternal life. And he wants peace with God. He desires assurance. He wants to walk with God. He wants to know that he will go to heaven with God. He desires the right thing, which is intimacy, peace, assurance, salvation so much. Again, he's so bothered by this desire that he's willing to cast all of his hope on Jesus. He has identified something there. The problem is, is that it's all about what he must do, which comes from the framework of all of his understanding, right? Uh, what must I pay or say or burn or sacrifice or surrender? What act of obedience is going to make God love and accept me? In a way that I feel assured of it. Like I will know then that God is with me and for me. And I think, so Jesus, you know, the, his way is sometimes to kind of ask the right questions to pick at the actual problem, Right? And so Jesus answers him in kind in verse 19. So he's asked, what what do I have to do? Jesus says, well, if you want to be righteous by doing, verse 19 says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. You shall honor 
your father and your mother. And so, in other words, he gives them the rules of the young man answers in verse 20. Teacher or rabbi, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And so, again, I think we see him unpacking the fact that his suffering springs out of his discovery that doing all kinds of religious things cannot bring him peace or the assurance that he so desperately desires. Uh, look, he's already unpacked the pain of it. Jesus said, you want to you feel righteous by doing? Do this. And he's saying, look, Jesus, I've already discovered the problem. I've been doing all of the righteous things since I was a little kid, and I still do not feel the peace and the assurance that like, I know who God is and that he loves me and that I'm safe. So in verse 21, Jesus can start to get to the heart of the matter, uh, quite literally get to the heart of the matter, because before he even goes there, um, Mark and Peter then include this sort of statement of God's or Jesus' feelings toward the man. How did he feel about this? So uh, verse uh, verse 21 begins with, Now Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Uh, This word agapao that's used here is, uh, again, the kind of, it's often described as the way God loves something. It means something like a love called out of the heart by the preciousness of the thing being loved. Does that make sense to you? Like, it it just, it, it, it wells up. He sees the human that he has made. He loves him. And I just love that that is the context set before he digs at the problem, right? So Jesus says he loves him, which is sort of heartbreakingly tender. And I think that we know from here Jesus loves the man. And I, Don't you think he loves the question? Because at its heart, it is getting to the gospel, right? What is it that saves us? How is it? Are we at peace with God? And I, this gives Jesus the opportunity to answer him honestly by identifying the greatest hurdle between him and Jesus and inviting him on his way. Are you with me? So he's going to identify his greatest hurdle, and then he's going to invite him on his way. And I don't want to get sidetracked here, but he's going to be inviting a lot of people on his way in the future, primarily after his death, died, and resurrected. And this is before Jesus has proven who he is. He's asking this young man, lay down the hurdle between me and you, you'll see, and Follow along in my way. Now, I think it is really worth underscoring, even before I read it, uh, before I finish the rest of uh, verse 21, uh, that even if he had given away all of his money, it wouldn't have saved him. Are, Are you with me on that? But that would have just been more works righteousness, right? So Jesus is going to say, let me read it for you real quick, because most of you are familiar with this story. But it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he says, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, I want you to, if you underscore in your Bible, underscore this one, then come follow me. It doesn't end with, hey, give away all your stuff to the poor, and then you will be saved. Uh, this would have been, he probably would have been unwilling to do that as well. Uh, clearly he would have. Uh, but I want to say again, it's the then follow me. It's the follow in my way. Lay down the hurdle and then follow in my way. It's not the money 
I'm going to say a few times, the money, it just happens to be his sore place. It is the come and follow me. The real invitation is to follow Jesus. Uh, The word used here in verse 21 for come follow me is akalatheo. And I know that we unpack some of these funny words uh, too much, but akalatheo means, stick with me, come walk the road I'm walking. And he walk where I'm walking. Hello? So this is his primary invitation. Where is he going? To Jerusalem to die and be resurrected. So that his invitation to the rich young ruler is the very same invitation to every Christian sense. Come follow in my way. Discover that I am the way. Share in my death and my victorious resurrection. In that way will you have abundant life and salvation. There is no act of doing which will create the peace you are looking for. There's only finding the way, which is Jesus, on his way, which is sharing in death and resurrection. So here you see this clear... Can't you imagine the disciples remembering it later? (laughs) Now I see, now I get it. But at the time, it says they were very confused. Um, I keep saying... Uh, that context is the key to understanding. So again, you see him on the way, this invitation for this young man to follow him on the way to death and resurrection. Um, I think it's worth it now for us to go back and pick up a central piece of Jesus' teaching in context. So as he begins this way, um, after he's predicted his own death and he's going to do it again, and then he's going to do it again right after this story, he starts to talk about the cost or the way of following him. It's called the cost of discipleship. And he's going to start describing the way of the cross almost a year before he's on the cross. So again, this would have been like later they would have really unpacked the language of this. But for context, let's go back to chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. It says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, Now, Before I read these words, I want you to pay attention to see if now you can hear like resonance of the words that he's going to say to the rich young ruler. Like the way they kind of echo through time, right? You know, back and forth. Uh, Now, hear these words in the context of what he said to the rich young ruler. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their crosses and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone, underscore this, give in exchange for their soul? Right? And he's saying the only way that you will know the kingdom and know me is to come alongside, take my way, pick up my cross, and go in the same way. There is no thing to give. The only way to find your life is to lose your life. If you read that, it's like he took that sermon and is just living it with this human being. He is re-preaching that sermon in the context of what this young, rich ruler understands about his own life. Now, if I go... Back to Mark chapter 10. So Jesus said that. I go back to chapter 10, and Jesus says that to the rich young ruler. Uh, Chapter 22, or verse 22 says, At this, 
the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Um, There is an apocryphal book called The Gospel of the Nazarenes, and it adds this picturesque detail of the man tilting his head to the side and scratching his head at the words of Jesus. Give away all your money and follow me. I just think it says then it kind of that word is like a a cloud lowered over him and he walked away gloomy. And it's worth noting that he is the only person in the entire New Testament to meet Jesus and walk away sad. Why sad? Because there was nothing for him to do except the total surrender of everything he esteemed most. There was no way, no thing for him to do except for him to surrender his life to Christ. And I like to make this point again. Before Christ proved he had the authority to do so. He is asking him to make the ultimate choice just like he's asked us to make the ultimate choice. Here he is living this parable out with this man. Um, He's going to say, it's so hard when you esteem something more than me or esteem me little. Uh, The way Jesus ends this passage gives me hope that this young man could have been or maybe is even eventually saved because Jesus shows such tenderness towards him. And I think he wraps it up in a way uh, that we'll see. But let's first finish. In verse 23, it says, Jesus looked around at his disciples. Now, this word here means I caught all of their attention with my eyes, right? I looked around to catch each because he wants to make a point. Literally, as this man's shape is receding into the crowd, Jesus says, hold on, let me make a point now. Uh, Remember, he's always teaching him. This is where he says, uh, in chapter 23, he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then it responds, Here, the disciples were amazed. It actually means like awestruck, mouth hanging open. And before they can lodge a complaint, Jesus just goes on to strengthen his point. He says uh, in verse, it says, they were amazed. And it says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is rich or kemata, somebody who has a lot of things to enter the kingdom of God. Of God, And it says again, at this point, they were even more astounded. It says, astounded out of measure. They cannot comprehend that if this guy can't make it into heaven, can anybody not make it into heaven? Now, you must understand that in that context, they would have thought wealth certainly could have got him into heaven. In fact, it was understood that enough almsgiving would get you into heaven. There was enough writing in that area that if you were just generous enough, that would get you into heaven. And Jesus is saying, actually, you got to lay it all down and follow me. From their perspective, this guy is like a prime heaven stock. Does that make sense? He's rich. He's young. He's a leader. The only thing that's missing is, you know, he was really good looking and from the right family. Uh, as far as they were concerned, this is the very kind of guy that should go into heaven. And if he can't make it into heaven, he's a good dude. God's blessed him with all this wealth. If he can't make it into heaven, nobody can possibly make it into heaven. That's why Jesus says, harder to push a camel through the eye of a needle. We get the image there, right? I, I don't have time to unpack this, but people always come af- ask me after a message like this, isn't that a gate in Jerusalem? Uh, maybe 900 years later. Uh, Jesus' point here is clear. Uh, you can't push a camel through a pinhole, right? 
That, in other words, that's how hard it is to get into heaven by being righteous. How hard? Impossibly hard. It is not possible that righteousness will get you into heaven. And so he teaches them that lesson. Verse 27, how he wraps it all up, says, Jesus looked around at them again to catch their attention and say, with humans, with man's power or righteousness, entrance into heaven is impossible. But not with God. With God, all things are possible. And that's how he brings this story of his strength in his interaction with this rich young ruler around. And I think, man, what do we do with a passage like this? Like, what is it teaching us about strength and about how we go and how we walk and how and where is he stronger than the things that are around us? And I want to make three very quick observations, and they will be quick. Number one. The actual salient point of this passage is not about money. It involves money, but it's not about money. The actual point of this passage, I think, is that no amount of human effort will ever get somebody into heaven. It is a ridiculous and futile task. It's impossible to do so. The only way to share in the good gifts of God is to follow in the way of Jesus Christ and to allow him to be the way. The first thing that Jesus is stronger than is Jesus is stronger than all human effort and religion. Praise be to God and thank you. That he is stronger than religious observation, which means you can be pretty weak at religious observation, but pretty solid in your alignment to Jesus, and that will yield you peace. For Jesus is the complete answer to all of our doing and our striving. He is the total assurance of peace with God. He is the purpose for our growth. He is the one who gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to walk with him. Much stronger than all the church. You can lay down all of your church effort right now and just pick up Jesus. Because he's much stronger than all of our church effort. The second thing, really quick, is I think it must be noticed here, like I said, that what Jesus is touching on for the young man is what he esteems the most. Uh, So let me say it this way. He says, he goes, I know what you love the most, your money. And he's really going to make the point, I am greater than, stronger than. I'd like to replace this word a little bit or refine it to superior than what you esteem the most. Don't you think it could have been any word here? Your reputation. Your pride, your beauty. I think, like, how many really beautiful people do you know who would lay down their looks for the cause of Christ? Or if somebody is like a, like a weightlifter, uh, a bodybuilder, and Jesus said, I want you to lay that down, stop focusing on building yourself up and focus on my kingdom, would they have trouble laying that down? Uh, how about to the rich and powerful, would you lay that down? How about to those who have a job that people esteem, would you lay that down? He's literally just making the same request of all of us. What do you esteem more than me? Lay it down and follow me. Share in death and life with me, and I will give you a life worth leading. Isn't that his whole point? Lay down something that's broken and not worth keeping. I will let you pick up something that is outstanding. Life with me. I think the great irony here is uh, that for most of us, this is just ideological. Now, I know some people who have to lay down their life quite practically, physically, dangerously lay down money. But for most of us in our comfort here, we're just saying, oh, Lord, I lay down my life, you know, 
as an idea. Uh, Jesus says, fine, I give you your whole life back. Now hold it with an open hand. Uh, So we don't actually have to lay much down. We have to kind of hold the things that we have gently understanding that they're his. Um, C.S. Lewis has a great little parable on understanding this. Uh, I don't know if you've heard it before. It's called Sixpence, None the Richer kind of an idea. Uh, The idea is a little boy comes to his father and says, hey, dad, will you give me six pennies? I want to buy you a present. And the dad's like, absolutely. And he gives him six pennies, right? And the kid goes out and buys a gift. And then the gift is enjoyed by the father, even though he bought it for himself. Uh, Everybody enjoyed the process, but only a fool would think that the father was six pence richer, right? uh, Everybody knows the father bought it, but everybody enjoyed it. That's the very concept. I lay down my, here, okay, I give it back to you. Now, as you give me back little pieces, nobody thinks, oh, well, thank you. So, uh, you gave the Lord your 10% tithe. The Lord is grateful. Actually, those were my pennies. I'm grateful to be included in you in this return of the gift, which I've given. That's the, how most of us deal with a life laid down. But it is worth saying that we are prone to slavery to our things. And Jesus is stronger, superior, greater, better, more enviable, worth following is better to choose Jesus than that which we esteem the most. When you esteem it, you become a slave to it. Trust me, way better to walk with Jesus than walk with your kemata, your stuff, your money. Jesus is superior to that which we esteem the most. Finally, I'm going to make this really quick. I believe the passage demands that we say something about money, doesn't it? And this, you can't get past this one without saying something about Money, and I think a lot of people are going to go, yeah, but hey, this guy was super rich. I am not rich. Uh, Newsflash for all of us, barring a few of us in this room, and there are some, barring a few of us, we are the richest people on the face of the earth right now and for all time. Like we are historically enviably rich. I like to say kings of old would swoon over hot showers and cold water that we, like, call on demand, right? Um, ben Selleck shared this at the men's breakfast the other day, but this really quickly, it says, the median household income around the world is $10,000 a year. The top 1% worldwide earns $32,400 a year. The median household income in Bellingham is twice that number. Without unpacking that in context, let me just say, we are the rich. We are fantastically wealthy in our context. And I think it demands that we ask ourselves, what do we esteem the most? How do we interact with our money? And this is just an invitation from Jesus to say, lay that down too. It is superior to choose me over your wealth. Jesus is stronger or superior to wealth. And the only cure for choosing wealth before Jesus is open-handed generosity. And we talk about that all the time. We want to be a generous church, not just so that we can do what we need to do in ministry, but so that we are not slaves to our things, but that we are following in the way of Jesus Christ. I don't think money will keep you from heaven, and generosity can't save you, but it sure can stand in the way and become your alternate purpose And I think this passage demands that we say, lay it down and follow the way, and you will be glad. You know, some messages end like this, like, big, powerful, you must do this kind of thing. I think this one ends in just a quiet reckoning. Where are you 
with what you esteem most. Where are you on your way? I hope that you are both challenged and comforted by this passage today. I know that I sure was. I want you to know there's little hope in being good enough for Jesus. But I've got the best news for all of us. He is better and stronger than all of that. And so all we have to do is keep laying down a broken life hardly worth keeping to pick up a redeemed life that was hardly ours worth receiving. Amen. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 a.m.